I'd like you to turn your Bibles, please, to the 37th Psalm. We're going to look at uh, what David has to say. And uh, since his youth and throughout his entire life, David had to suffer a whole lot at the hands of wicked people, sinful people, dishonest men. And now, and, uh, as an old man, he shares some advice in his 37th Psalm on how we can respond when victimized by evil plots and poisonous tongues. And uh, we have a whole lot of those around today. And sadly to say, even in the body of Christ. And so, we're going to look at some alternatives uh, David gives us from his own personal experience with regards to avoiding fretting. What does it mean to fret? What do people fret about? Uh, we've heard of the unfortunate incident uh, of the Malaysia jet airliner that crashed recently. And one example of what fretting really is, is some of the people who have tickets for other Malaysian airline flights are now fretting about going on those flights. And so they are asking if they could turn their tickets in. And the airline has made some concessions that they won't give any penalties or anything like that. You can turn your tickets in if you want to. But that's just one example of fretting, what fretting is all about. Uh, there are a couple of definitions to it. Uh, it's defined as agitation resulting from active worry. Any here, anyone here worries a lot, who are active worriers? There are people who have businesses and that's all they do, but all they do. They are active worriers. They're always worrying. Their worrying is always, and then another definition is worry, worry unnecessarily or excessively. So those are just two definitions of what fretting actually means. And I'm sure none of us have exempt uh, from, from, from fretting at some particular point in our lives. What causes fretting? It could be an illness. It could be uh, the threat of job loss. It could be problems with uh, fellow uh, co-workers on the job. A whole number of things uh, can cause us to resort to fretting. Well, David had a number of experiences in his own life that caused him to fret. And so he sat down one day and he says, you know, this really doesn't make any kind of sense. Let me sit down and reflect on why I should not be fretting. And so he, write, he wrote this psalm, and the entire psalm gives us some alternatives to fretting. That's what the whole psalm is really all about. Now, I, when I was growing up, I would hear people say to, to persons who offended them, I could read Psalm 37 for you. Anyone ever heard that? I heard that a lot while I was growing up. And so people often looked at this psalm as a psalm that they could, they could use to threaten people who were causing them to fret. All right? I don't know what that meant when I was growing up, and I probably still don't. But uh, we want to look at, uh, we want to look at what, uh, what David has to say, uh, some of the alternatives that he gives us. And the first one is, instead of fretting, consider God's sovereignty. Instead of fretting, consider God's sovereignty. Verses 1 and 2. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward wrongdoers. For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. 
or some people say herbs. Uh, and that's the, the New American Standard uh, Bible translation. And so for the believer, fretting should never be the only response. And for some believers it is. It should never be the only response to the negative impact of ungodly people or ungodly circumstances. And those are the two things that cause people to fret. And he mentions two types of people here. Two types of people. Our text, in our text, ungodly people are labeled in two ways. And these are the two types of people that cause people to fret. Evildoers, people always scheming and conniving and trying to come up with some kind of evil scheme to pull over on people. And wrongdoers, persons who are always on the wrong track, always on the wrong side of the law, always doing something to agitate people and cause other people some harm. Now, I want you to think about how risky, um, how risky fretting can really be. And, and some of us have probably, if not all of us, have probably experienced this, and I know I have. Okay, as a result of fretting at some particular point about some situation. Think about this now. Someone offended you sometime earlier in the day, whether it's in early in the week or early in the month, but at some particular point, someone offended you. And instead of relaxing uh, to get your much-needed rest when you go to bed that night, you don't. You lie in bed all night long, mulling over the whole episode. Sounds familiar? You mull the whole episode over in your mind. First, you think about all that was said and done to you. And then you say, boy, you know, that wasn't right. They shouldn't have done that to me. That wasn't right. Then you reflect on how, how we responded. And then we wish we had come up with some, some choice insults to throw back at them. Of course, it's past now, but we're still mulling these things over in our mind. And before long, guess what happens? Our digestive juices that are meant for good, turn into sulfuric acid. Ever heard about acid indigestion? Acid reflux? You wonder why you ever got those? The digestive juices turn into sulfuric acid, causing us to toss and turn all night long, wondering if you will ever get some sleep. But guess who caused that? Guess who caused it? You and I, we did that. The person who offended us didn't do that. We did that. Okay? So fretting, worrying, hurts no one but who? Yourself. It hurts no one but us. And it accomplishes absolutely nothing that is beneficial to our well-being. And so David, David has been there. On many occasions he had been there. And so he says, this is not good. You must not do it. Don't do it. It's a no-no. It's not worth it. And then according to the text, there's another no-no that he mentions here uh, that we need to consider God's sovereignty in regard. Now, remember, when we talk about considering God's sovereignty, we want you to understand that God is in control of all the circumstances of our lives. And so we need to consider him that, you know, if this person is going to cause me to fret, listen, God has got this in the equation. He's got all of this factored in. He didn't miss this one. Okay? He didn't miss this. So we need to consider his sovereignty. He's still in control. He's still on the throne. The other no-no he mentions here is we must not be envious or jealous of wrongdoers. That's the second type of person that causes us to worry. Wrongdoers, or we may call them unrighteous or ungodly people. Because, you see, life on this earth is probably the only heaven that they will ever get. So why hurt your head? Why get upset? Why agitate your digestive juices over people like that? 
Okay, don't worry about them. This this heaven, this earth is the only heaven they will ever get. But you've got you've got a heaven of all the joy and the bliss that you're looking forward to. So this is the only heaven they'll ever get. It's only a matter of time before what we call the big sweep of payback comes into their lives and cuts them down, fading and withering their impressive careers and their impressive lifestyles. It's only a matter of time. So he says, don't fret over people like that. Consider, factor in God's sovereignty. God's in control. He's got it. And then, you see, we need to understand also that following God's demands require living differently from wrongdoers. Leave the fretting for the wrongdoers. That's something that they need to get involved in because they don't have a God that they can call upon. They don't have a God that they could depend on for his sovereignty work in their lives. And so he says, the challenge then is to live differently from the wrongdoers live, especially since the end of believers will, the end for believers will be the treasures of heaven. Look forward to that. That's what we're going to get. And they will last forever. Whatever unbelievers get on, on earth may only last for this lifetime. Only in this lifetime. What they say, when you're dead, you're done. That applies to the unbeliever. Okay, as far as the things of this world is concerned, it's all gone. Okay, of course, they got another thing to look forward to. But the, the point of the, the fact of the matter is, God is in control. God is sovereign. So how do we respond then to what David says in these first two verses? Well, regardless of how popular they are or how vast their wealth is, Christians should never be jealous of ungodly people because... Everything they have will fade and vanish like grass that withers and just dies. So why hurt your head? Why get upset? Why have sleepless nights? Because of people like that. So it's a must that as Christians we consider God's sovereignty instead of fretting. But then secondly, instead of fretting, trust God and do good. Trust God and do good. We don't awfully think about life in those terms when we resort to fretting. Verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will be, you will live safe in the land and prosper. This is the New Living Translation. And all the verses that we're going to use is from the New Living Translation, except for probably one or two that will be King James. But in uh, verses 1 and 2 conveys the negative sides of this picture, of these verses. And the negative side is, don't get agitated by evildoers and wrongdoers. Don't let them cause you to get bent out of shape. Don't let them cause you to ruffle your feathers. And don't even think about wishing you were like them because of what they have. That's what he's saying here. Now verse 3 states the positive side of the picture. What we must do first, he says, is trust in the Lord and do good. Normally, whenever we come to the point of fretting, uh, the furthest thing from our mind with regards to the person who's causing the fretting is doing good. You don't have anything good that you want to do toward that person who's causing you to fret. And so he says, trust in the Lord. In other words, don't think about taking matters into your own hands. Trust God and do good. Don't resort to taking vengeance on your enemies. Because you have an opportunity to do so. When God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so he says, trust in the Lord and do good. Now this kind of trust is the same, is, is the same as, is not the same as 
having a baseless hopelessness that everything is just going to work out okay by itself. That's not what he's talking about here. What he actually means is having a deep, unshakable dependence on God. Not on anybody, but God. Not even on your own past experiences that worked out well, but on God. Because God has promised to punish the wicked and reward the righteous. Those are the thoughts that are to be in the back of our minds whenever we are challenged with fretting because of evildoers and wrongdoers. And since his word never fails, it can always be trusted. Can it? It can always be trusted. Has he ever failed you? His word can always be trusted. The godly will without a drought dwell in the land and enjoy the security that only God can provide. Now regardless of how vicious the attacks of demons or even people may be, not a single sheep of Christ's flock will ever be lost. And we are reminded of that. They will never perish. They will never be condemned. Notice a verse in John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Not only that, but all who fully trust Christ, for all of us who fully trust Christ, there's a guarantee of a dwelling place awaiting them in the Father's house. And he tells us about that in chapter 14 of John and verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And so it's a must that as Christians, we trust God and do good instead of fretting. That's the second alternative. There's the third. Instead of fretting, take the light in the Lord. Verse 4. Take the light in the Lord and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. And boy, the desires of your heart is to want to be able to get some sleep, right? Rather than toss it and turn it all night. God will give it to you. Okay? What if, what if you had a great longing and a desire to engage in some kind of a ministry for the Lord? It's something that you always want to do. You're convinced that God is calling you to do this and you want to do this. Uh, your greatest aspiration is to want to do this particular kind of ministry for the Lord and give God all the glory and be fulfilled in your life on earth. The only problem is every move you make in the right direction is blocked and frustrated by a powerful, overwhelming, invisible enemy. Can't, you can't make a move. Everywhere you turn, he's there. What do you do? Instead of fretting, what do you do? Now, the first thing you'd probably do is fret. Lord, I want to do this so bad. Why can't I do this? And then you resort to fretting and then think about who the enemy may be. And then you put that, you, you, you visualize that invisible enemy into some visible enemy and then pick on somebody. But what do you do? According to the text, it says you delight yourself in the Lord. Why? Because your firm belief assures you that in his own time and in his own way, he'll do what? He will give you the desires of your heart. Notice, in his own time and in his own way. Sometimes we want to rush God. What does it mean? What this means for you is that fighting back is not even an option. The battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. 
And uh, nothing has changed for the people of God when it comes to fighting battles, as far as I know, as far as what the scriptures teach me. I don't think things have changed with regards to God's people fighting battles. Has it? Has it changed? Second Chronicles 20, 15. He said, Listen, all, all my people of Judah and Jerusalem. Listen, King Jehoshaphat. This is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army. Notice it's a mighty army, just not no, no old Bush army. This is a mighty army. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army, for the battle is not yours. How many times we get in a battle and we think we gotta win this? We gotta we gotta beat him. We gotta lick him down and, and put him in a figure four and a body slam him and all that sort of stuff. Okay? God says the battle is not yours, but God's. And then in Exodus chapter 14, it verse 14. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. No need to fret. Don't fret about this. Stay calm. God is going to fight for you. And so it's a must that as Christians we take delight in the Lord instead of fretting. How often do we do that? But there's another alternative. Instead of fretting, commit your ways to God. Verses 5 and 6. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him. And he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Let's say you were misquoted. You were wrongly accused and you were insulted. And all these accusations wouldn't be so hard to take if there was some inkling of truth to any of them. But they are all totally false and malicious. How do you respond? Instead of fretting about it, what do you do? You commit the whole issue to the Lord. The whole issue. Not a piece of it. Because sometimes we'd be like to go to God and say, Lord, you know, I can handle this. I got this. But there's one part of this that I just can't handle. I need you to handle that part for me. God says, mm -mm, doesn't work that way. You commit the whole thing to the Lord. Commit the whole matter, the whole board, plus all of your burdens on the Lord, all of it on the Lord. Only by letting the Lord act on your behalf can you be completely vindicated. You see, only God can completely vindicate us. Sometimes we think we can do it ourselves. Okay, a lot of us are uh, self-help type of people. I know I am. You know, we want to do it ourselves, you know. You can get the tools, you go to Home Depot, and you get all the materials, and you get all the stuff, and, and you can do it. Okay, but it doesn't work that way when it comes to God working on our behalf in terms of vindication. God is the only one that can vindicate us. It's only God's vindication that can cause everyone to clearly see how innocent you really were in the final analysis. You can't do that yourself. Commit it to the Lord. So what is David saying? He's saying replace fret with delight in the Lord. Can we do that? Is that too hard? Replace fret with delight in the Lord and commit everything you have and do to him. But what does it mean to delight? What does that mean? In this particular context, it means experiencing great pleasure and happiness in someone's presence. And the only way for us for this to happen is by knowing someone well enough to be able to do that. Because you're not going to commit yourself to anybody that you don't know well enough to do it. 
You know, here in our fellowship, we don't want to talk to other members of the body that we all supposed to be one about certain things in our lives because we don't we don't have that kind of relationship. We don't know them well enough to do that. Okay, but God says we can know Him to the extent that we can do that. So we must know God better to delight in Him, and our delightfulness comes from knowing about God's great love for us that we just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. Our delightfulness know, comes by knowing of that the extent of that love, what God has done for us. And uh, what does it mean to commit? That's what it means to delight, but what does it mean to commit? Well, it's pretty much straightforward. It means entrusting everything, holding nothing back, everything, our lives, our families, our jobs, and our possessions to God's control and guidance. Commit it all to Him. It means believing that He can take care of us better than we can take care of ourselves. Now, that's kind of tough, isn't it? Because you see, we are born as independent creatures. We want to do everything by ourselves. A two-year-old on the ground can't put on his clothes and no, you don't want no help. He can't get it on. He's struggling, he's crying, he's weeping, but don't, don't reach out to help him. And we're born that way. We want to do it all ourselves. But God can take care of us. That's what it means to commit to the Lord, commit everything to Him, entrust it to Him. And so it's a must that as Christians we commit our ways to the Lord instead of fretting about things that happen in our lives. But there's another alternative. Instead of fretting, be patient and humble. Verse 7, be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for Him to act. Boy, now that's hard sometimes, isn't it? Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret or fret about their wicked schemes. Stop being angry. Turn your turn from your rage. Do not lose your temper. It only leads to harm. So, once we have committed our way to the Lord, the next step is to do what? Rest in him. Since God is already carrying the burden, there's no need for us to take on that burden and struggle with it ourselves like we often like to do. Too often, that's exactly what we do. We reluctantly cast, even though God says, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. We reluctantly do so, but we promptly take them back when we feel as if God ain't working fast enough for us. When God is not working quick enough for us, we take those burdens back promptly. Because, you know, God's timing just ain't right for me. And it's, a, it's against God's will and it's against God's timing for us to do that. But notice what he says in the passage. He says, and wait patiently for him. How many times we wait for the Lord, but, but when you really think about it, your, your wait isn't really patient. It's impatient. You're agitated when you're waiting. And what does that, what does, what does that uh, resort to? Fretting. Okay, remember, one of the definitions of fretting is agitation. Okay, so we are not waiting for God patiently. You're fretting about your situation rather than committing it totally to the Lord and allow Him to work it out. So far, we have seen how the believers, all in all, is constantly dependent on the Lord. Notice the verses that we looked at already. Verse 3, trust in the Lord. Verse 4, 
delight in the Lord. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Verse 7, the first part of verse 7, or we may call it verse 7a, rest in the Lord. And then there's another one, verse 7, the latter part of verse 7, what is it? Wait patiently for him. So you see how everything that we do is totally dependent on, on him and not us? And yet still, we are determined to take matters into our own hands rather than waiting on the Lord. Now, we can't deny that if there's one thing that we are not good at, is what? Waiting. Boy, we don't like to wait. We do not like to wait. In a world of instant gratification and satisfaction, waiting ain't for us. When it comes to waiting, we say, I ain't for that. We got to move. Okay, you sit on the traffic light and the light just turned green. And you're already blowing your horn. The person didn't have a chance to really put their foot on the pedal yet. And you're blowing your horn. Guilty. Waiting is the hardest thing for believers to do. But what does it take to wait on the Lord? What really does it take? Believe it or not, all it takes is faith. That's all. Nothing hard. Is that so hard? Just faith. Real, authentic faith that is translated into the absolute certainty that God is able to do what he has promised that he will do. That's all it takes. Remember Abraham? Abraham is known for that kind of faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 20 and verse 21. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. Never. Now, notice it doesn't say he wavered sometimes. It said he never. Can you imagine what kind of life that could be? If we were to live that way? Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. And those were some serious promises that God made. Serious promises. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought God glory. See how important faith is? We always talk about wanting to give God glory, wanting to glorify God. But this is one way to do it. Simple faith. Verse 21. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. Now, we have a problem with that sometimes, eh? We do. We know God promised that he says he's going to do this. But we're not quite, we're not quite sure that he's going to be able to pull it off. And so to stress his point, David uses repetition. Now, why do we use repetition? Emphasis. We really want to drive that point home. We want to really get it across, right? David uses repetition. A second time he says, do not fret. So we see where the problem is. Fretting. And remember now, David had been there. Now, unlike David, even after deciding to, deciding not to get upset by our own ill treatment by others, we have a tendency to continue to stir up the muck in our minds over and over and over and over again without realizing that doing so cannot be not just self-defeating, but also dangerous, can be dangerous. How? Consider that even if the evil person prospers in his way, as he says here in the psalm, or even if he succeeds in his wicked schemes, as he alludes here in the psalm, the Christian should never become emotionally disturbed to the point where we're going to build up anger, resentment, malice, and hatred. No matter how the wicked proceeds, no matter how successful they are, 
The believer should never allow that to get us to this point. By allowing ourselves to indulge in these attitudes can eventually lead to not only violent words, what you call, what they call, cutting words, biting words, biting words, but also some actions as well that are not godly, or we might call unbecoming of a child of God. Actions causing us to become offenders ourselves, and then we end up on the wrong side of the track. We must also understand that being patient and humble involves some other things that Paul, uh, that David outlines here. It involves experience, experiencing peace in spite of the impact of evil. And he outlines this from verse 9 all the way through verse 20. That's what he focuses on. From verse 9 all the way to verse 20. We need to understand that being patient and humble involves being able to experience peace in spite of what the enemy may throw at us or how people may treat us. Verse 9. For the wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. Verse 10. Soon the wicked will disappear. Boy, we'd all like to see that, don't we? Especially when we look at how crime is going these days. Though you look for them, they will be gone. Can't find them nowhere. Verse 11. The lowly will possess the land and will live in peace and prosperity. So it's only a matter of time. According to what David is saying here, it's only a matter of time before all of the wrongs in this world will be made right once and for all. Boy, we're we looking forward to that day, aren't we? It's coming. Whenever that time comes, evildoers will be cut off, he says. His words. And all the blessings God has promised for his trusting saints will be fully realized to the max. And we're looking forward to that day as well. So it won't be long before the wicked will simply disappear from the scene. And it won't matter how thoroughly people look for them in all the places that they normally hang out. Your search will result in a fruitless exercise because you won't find them. That's what he's saying here. In that day, the humble will inherit the land and take pleasure in all of its unparalleled wealth and blessings and possessions. But until then, the extreme, the extremely destructive emotions of anger, fury, and short temper will do nothing but expose our lack of faith and the fact that God loves us and is in full control will be continually ignored. And that's what happens now. We continually ignore the fact that God is always in control and we do that whenever we resort to fretting. Because when we fret, we negatively respond to God's divine intervention regarding all these alternatives to fretting that he's already laid out here and the ones that we'll even see further on. So what should be our response then? Instead of fretting, trust God by making yourself available to him to use you to keep you safe. By dwelling on your problems, you will only become anxious and angry. But peace is what you will find if you concentrate on God and his goodness. Where do you focus your attention when you are challenged with situations in your life that resort, that you want to resort to fretting? Where's your focus? But now when we look at verse 11, and we think about it, being humble barely seems like the suitable behavior in dealing with enemies, isn't it? 
That's, that's barely what we want to think of when we talk about dealing with enemies. But when engaged in God's style of combat, it must be done. And it must be done with peaceful faith. It must be done with humbleness before God. And it also must be done with expectation of God's deliverance. That's how we fight God's battles. Remember what God says, the battle is the Lord's. That means that we use God's battle plan and not our own. And God's battle plan is peaceful faith, humbleness before God, and expectations of God's deliverance. That's God's battle plan. Such is the reward that Jesus himself also promised for those who, are, who have humble attitudes. As he, as he mentions in, in uh, Matthew chapter 5, and verse 5, where it says, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. But then verse 12 and 13 talks about the wicked again. But the wicked plot against the godly. They snarl at them in defiance. Verse 13. But the Lord just laughs, for he sees their day of judgment coming. For the time being, wicked people continue to scheme and extort and oppress the children of God. They'll continue to do that. Okay? They'll always do that. While their hostility toward us is expressed with extreme bitterness, God is only amused at what they're doing. Notice what he says. He only laughs at them. God laughs at all the snarling and growling that they're carrying on with. Because he knows that day is coming. Their day of reckoning is coming. But then it would be beneficial to us when we look at our enemies with the same kind of disconnected lack of concern that God does. God laughs at them because he, know that he knows that their day of judgment or reckoning is coming. And so it's a must that as Christians we be patient and humble instead of fretting. It's another one. Instead of fretting, be upright in conduct. In other words, watch your behavior. Verse 14. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy. To slay those who are upright in conduct. Verse 15. Their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. In our day and time, truth is to forever be on the ropes. Always on the ropes and wrong seem to always be on the throne. And that's why we resort to fretting sometimes. Because we're Lord, is this really going to change? Is this really going to change? It's obvious that the wicked are often well equipped and well prepared compared to the righteous who seem to be unprepared and constantly outsmarted. And so, what do they do? They resort to fretting. In the moral sphere, however, or in the moral realm of things, however, there are some unbendable laws at work, which is very evident by the reality of how hard the way of the transgressor is in the end. And the Bible constantly reminds us of that. The way of the transgressor is hard. And if we keep that in mind, the threats of the enemy will not cause us to fret. Sinful people can't get away from their sins forever. Because the bounce back or the ricochet or the boomerang effect, whatever you want to call it, is always working. And sooner or later, as we often hear people say, their sins will certainly come home to roost. Sooner or later, it's coming. Verse 16, it is better to be godly and have little than to be evil and rich. Because God's saints may have minimal belongings, it doesn't mean that they are to bow and bend to the wicked. 
It's much better. What they have, the minimal things that God's people have, is much better than the vast riches of a whole lot of the wicked. Verse 17. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. You get that? The Lord sustains or upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. Every ounce of strength of the wicked will be broken. It will be sapped. Is what he is saying here. But the Lord of unlimited power will uphold. He will sustain the righteous. In his omniscience, the Lord not only knows how many days we have as his righteous people, but he also knows what will fill those days and where those late days will lead us to. He knows all of that. So since he knows all of that, why would we resort to fretting whenever we are confronted with the enemy that seemed to be bigger than us? He knows that the inheritance of the just will last forever because it is incorruptible, it is undefiled, and it is unfading, and it is set aside in heaven. It is reserved for us in heaven, guarded by God's power. No other power can guard like God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. Verse 19, they will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine, they will have abundance. Again, talking about the righteous. When hard times come for believers, they will not be ashamed of their faith. And there are people today who are ashamed of their faith when hard times hit them, because the devil tells them, if hard times hit you, you probably ain't safe. If hard times hit you, probably you're doing something wrong. Remember Job? But there are people who are going through those things today. And he says, when hard times hit the believers, they will not be ashamed of their faith. They will not be ashamed that they trusted God because their unseen spiritual resources will always see them through. In times of shortage, they benefit from a unique kind of abundance that only God can provide. Because they have learned and practiced sacrificial living, they don't experience deprivation when the cupboard is almost empty. They don't panic. And why should they? When the Lord, when they have a Lord who is able to provide an abundant table in, an, in a barren wilderness, he's able to do that. And we are privileged to see God supply our needs in miraculous ways. It's a tremendous privilege when we see God do that. Verse 20. But the wicked will die. Isn't that good to know? The Lord's enemies are like flowers in the field. They will disappear like smoke. The key word in this psalm, if you look at the old psalm, you'll notice the key word is wicked. And that's probably why when I was growing up, I used to hear people say, I go read Psalm 37 for you. Because it always talks about what God is going to do to wicked people. And so they were sending a message. Now I understand. They were sending a message. You see, everybody knows what Psalm 37 says. Even the unsaved. Okay? But the key word in the psalm is wicked. And it occurs some 14 times. Over and over again, David mentions this word. And it refers to God's enemies. In addition to being called wicked, they're also called transgressors. They're called wrongdoers. They're called those who prosper in their way. They're called men who carry out evil devices. They're called children of the wicked. They're called those who are cursed by God. And so there are a number of definitions he gives. But in the final analysis, they all, of course, are the enemies of God. 
But whatever they are called, it's evident that throughout this psalm that the death bell tolls for them. It's ringing. It's ringing. And it's ringing. And according to the text, it means nothing that, it means that, means nothing that will, that will stand up against them. It, it means that whether, regardless of whether they stand out like the splendor of the flowers in the fields today, their day of judgment is coming. They will be mowed down and disappear like smoke, he says. And so it's a must that as Christians we be upright in our conduct instead of fretting. But it's also important that instead of fretting we demonstrate godliness and compassion. Verse 25 says, I once was old, I once was young, and now I am old. Yet I have never seen the godly abandoned or their children begging bread. I guess we can all say amen to that, right? Amen. David was an old man. He was an old man when he wrote this psalm. He was an old man when he wrote this, and, but all through his life he had never seen the righteous forsaken. He had never seen the offspring begging for bread. And David's statement shows how, tip, how, how a typical comprehensive statement of Scripture can communicate the way spiritual laws function so ordinarily in our lives. Because while there may, be a, there may have been some exceptions, David didn't see them. doesn't say they didn't happen. There may have been some exceptions that he didn't see. Because he said, I have not seen such exceptions do not contradict the general principles of Scripture. Verse 26, the godly always gives generous loans to others, and their children are a blessing. Isn't it good to know that your children are a blessing? Amen. Notice the, the double characterization of the godly in this verse. Double characterization. One, generous givers, and two, regular lenders. By obeying God's word, the godly is able to practice some things that people have gotten success from practicing today. Industriousness, good economic sense, and plan saving. In addition, by hard work, careful shopping, eradicating waste, and avoiding reckless spending, the godly is able to stretch their resources or to stretch their money in such a way that they're able to help the needy. That's what he's talking about here. When he talks about generous givers, regular, giving regular loans. Notice the generational effect of the godly person's lifestyle. Because the descendants of the godly have carefully learned these lessons at home and pursued them all through their own lives, they become a blessing to others. And so it's a must for us as Christians that we demonstrate godliness and compassion instead of fretting. And finally, the final alternative that he gives us to fretting is engage in righteous communication. Verse 30, the godly offer good counsel. They teach right from wrong. They have made God's law their own, so they will never slip from his path. The communication of godly people is packed with wisdom if we adhere to what God says. This means that their communication is sound, it's Bible-based, or we may call it biblical, and it's, as a result, it's rock-solid. Can't beat it. 
Their conversations are not characterized by dishonesty or deception, only integrity. By constantly meditating on God's word, notice constantly meditating, not hit and miss. Constantly meditating on God's word, they prevent themselves from slipping into transgression and disgrace. How many times do we hang our heads in shame when we hear of believers who have ended up in transgression and disgrace? Because it reflects us. They're part of us. We're all part of one body. When they, when they mess up, what the, the condemnation is all your Christians just alike. So it's a must that as Christians we engage in righteous communication instead of fretting. And so the bottom line is, here's a summation then. Instead of fretting, Christians should accept God's divine intervention as outlined in these alternatives to fretting. Eight of them he gives us. Consider God's sovereignty, verses 1 and 2. Trust God and do good, verse 3. Delight in the Lord, verse 4. Commit your ways to the Lord, verse 5. Be patient and humble, verses 7 through 11. Be upright in conduct, verse 14. Demonstrate godliness and compassion, verses 25 and 26. And engage in righteous communication, verses 30 and 31. So, the question that we must answer ourselves as we leave here tonight is, why are you still fretting? Why are you fretting? God has given us eight alternatives to fretting. Wow. You should at least try one of them, eh? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you, Lord, that you always make a way of escape. You tell us that there is no temptation, and fretting is one of them, that overtakes us but you will always provide a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. We pray, O oh Lord, this evening that as we leave here, we may be mindful, O oh Lord, that you are a sovereign God and you are in absolute control of all of the circumstances that come into our lives. In other words, Lord, whatever we go through is Father-filtered. It has to go through you first before it gets to us. Help us to remember that if we allow it to get to us to the extent of fretting, we have failed in accepting and responding to your divine intervention. Guide us, direct us, sustain us as we go forth this week, for we know that without a doubt we will be tested on what you have conveyed and communicated to us this evening in some way, shape, or form. Help us, Lord, to be prepared to be able to stand up against the enemy when that happens. We pray now, Lord, that you would bless us as we leave here with your blessed benediction. Guide us and direct us. Keep us safe on the wet streets as we drive to our homes this evening. And help us to be conscious of careless and reckless drivers. Give us wise judgment and clear discretion as we drive home this evening. For we ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you as you go.